and that bundle in front of you, I think there's 24 pages there, so that's a lot. But if you divide that between three lectures, um, that's a little over seven pages a lecture. Um, so just about workable. So this course, we're looking about sexual morality. Um, to obviously have an explicit focus on the, ch uh, the virtue that defines our subject is pretty vital. We've had a few sessions introducing ourselves before looking at the virtue that defines this subject. We've talked about some historical background, we've talked about the ends of marriage and of sexuality, therefore, in general. So if you remember your virtue theory, um, in every virtue there is an, it's the habituation of an action. Um, so t in order to have that properly habituated, you need to know the end, the object of the act you're aiming at, so that you're habituated in the right thing, not habituated in the wrong thing. So that's why last lecture we looked at the ends of marriage in order to kind of have that hopefully clarity of thought, what are we aiming for um, in chastity? So what am I gonna run through? Let me, so chastity. I'm gonna, first of all, try and broaden our vision in terms of situating chastity with the other virtues. Now, when with Dr. Murphy, I know it's a whole, more than a year ago before the pastoral year and everything, well, not for you, I suppose, but um, he went through the virtues in the a particular course on the virtues. Did you have a particular thing on chastity within that, or is that presumed to be done in this course? Temperance. Yeah, it's part of yeah. Okay. So it was like a, a minor subsection. So in a sense, we may or may not have much time. so it's not going to do us any harm in a sense to be repeating stuff. Um, so in this lecture, on one level, I'm going to aim to repeat just what is a virtue, what are we aiming for in virtues, then more particular this virtue. And one of the things that to try and articulate in these lectures is how this virtue relates to other virtues, how it relates to what's going on in the human person. So I'm going to trace through um, concub... Nothing looks right when you write on the board. The concupiscible power of the sensitive appetite. So if you recall, there are various appetites in the human person specified more particularly by um, the sensitive, sensitive, um, the sensitive appetite having a concupiscible power and a rascible power. The concupiscible power is seeking what looks desirable and fleeing from what looks difficult. Um, whereas the irascible power rises up to conquer what looks difficult. In what I'm going to outline, particularly in these couple lectures, tracing the action of the concupiscible power. So what that looks like when it finds its proper objects, but conversely also what it looks like when it doesn't get them and gets something else because you've got this yearning within you, wanting satisfaction. If it doesn't find it in the right things, it's going to grab for it in something else. So if you don't have it, that fulfillment in the virtues, you are going to develop these vices. There's kind of no middle ground, because this concupiscible power is moving you to something. Now, the ultimate goal of all of the virtues is the queen of the virtues, charity. Um, charity being the possession of the life of God himself, um, you know, the divine charity, theological charity. 
Um, when you possess God, when you possess charity, the immediate fruit of that is joy. So, you know, when you read the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle, he talks about how this quest for happiness is in everyone. And people disagree about what happiness is, they disagree about where they're going to find it, but everybody in some sense is wanting happiness. This is the place where all that is satisfied. You possess God, you have that union with him in divine charity, and you have joy. Now, if you don't find your union with him in that, there are two ways that primarily goes wrong, sloth and envy. Sloth being about the divine good and envy being about your neighbor's good, which doesn't have a you in it. So, sloth, sorrow at the divine good. So rather than me seeing God moving to him, possessing him and having that joy in possessing him in divine charity, I instead see it's just hard work being holy. It's hard work striving for God. And instead of having that joy in that striving, I have this sorrow in just not wanting to be bothered. And this is what we call sloth. Envy is also a sorrow, not at the divine good, but at my neighbor's good. So the twofold aspects of charity, love of God, love of neighbor, rather than seeing my neighbor having some good and rejoicing for him that he has that, I see him have some good and I just feel sorrow that he's got it. And St. Thomas says that the basic movement that I somehow feel within me, him having it stops me having it. Um, and so I feel sorrow seeing him have that. Whereas if I truly loved him, I would rejoice that he's got something, even if I don't have that thing. Now joy, we'll note, is spiritual, but it, because we're bodily creatures, there are various pleasures of the body that we also experience in the soul, that we also need to have a proper habituation to, so that our experience of them becomes part of charity and joy. And we'll note in particular, um, I'm not going to cover all the virtues, but chastity, abstinence, and play, or games. Um, And I'm going to look at abstinence and play in a way as of um, broadening more generally that we can experience pleasure as part of our experience of God and supernatural joy. So that the pleasures aren't an enemy of the virtuous life, rather the pleasures need to be properly ordered, properly integrated to have a truly virtuous life. But as we all know, often we seek those pleasures in a way that somehow pulls us away from God, so that that very same word pleasures can be a problem rather than a good thing. And we'll note in particular, lust and gluttony, that we can pursue these pleasures in a way that is disordered, in a way that is habituated in vice, not in virtue. Um, how much did Dr. Murphy go through the mechanism of growing in virtue? Do you recall? Okay, well, we're at least going to touch on that. Um, 
growing in virtue. How does that happen? What's the mechanism of it? We're going to note in particular some uh, practical examples. How do we do that with respect to chastity? Um, we're going to note this, therefore, in terms of natural virtues, the ones that Aristotle would have known, but ultimately supernatural ones, those that we as Christians are aware of, know, are capable of in grace. Um, growing in the virtues means training the passions. I'm going to note the relationship between um, charity and chastity. So that charity is love of God. Chastity, properly understood then, is going to be supernatural and also part of our love of God. And then we're going to note what chastity is per se, how its object is self-gift. We're going to note also the meaning of the word comes from the word chastise with respect to pleasure. And as I say, we're going to link it with charity. Um, so keeping up my color scheme chastise with respect to pleasure and charity in terms of a supernatural end. What exactly is the color scheme? I know you gave us... Uh, so, well, mm, the color scheme varies lecture by lecture. Okay. So there's... There's usually a reason. It's not just about differentiating. Um, I didn't know if there was some like overarching. No, no. That would be clever if it was, but no. Um, <laughs> so, in brief, that's what we're going to be looking at the next couple of lectures. And um, this, these couple of lectures are quite text heavy in terms of my bundle of lecture notes. So do feel free to interrupt me to say, um, it's over a year since we last studied any of this. Can you repeat, amplify? Um, that's fine. Okay, page one. Uh, so this page, I am kind of just reminding you, hopefully reminding you of where virtue in general, what it's all about. Um, so I start with a question, you know, what would have been Aristotle's focus? What are we seeking? And I know that the human nature possesses faculties that, from the more general to the more specific, move us to seek what are called goods. So we have the natural inclinations, if you remember, to self-preservation, to sex and offspring, and to... Um, to God, to being social, to being truth, to the, to the rational. So, you know, that the plant, the animal, the rational is the usual way of breaking that down. Then we have the appetites, more specifically, that are divided into the rational appetite, the will, and the sensitive appetite. Um, the sensitive appetite then get specified in the passions, which as I've noted already, we have the irascible power and the concubiscible, and then the habituses, um, if we're hobbits. Um, virtues and vices pursuing real or apparent goods. Um, did Dr. Murphy distinguish between a habit and a habitus? Do you recall at all? Okay, so that which is a long time ago. Yeah. Um, 
that would be a virtue because you could have a, a disposition to something evil which is still a, a disposition still a habitus but then it'd be a vice um, Well, okay, so Pinkers makes a point of this distinction. So it's not really in the tradition before him. And I think it's a play on words that probably wouldn't have existed in Aristotle, in uh, St. Thomas's linguistic framework. Um, so Pinkers wrote a famous article called Virtue is Not a Habit, um, in which he's trying to say a habit is something mechanical, exterior, um, a habitus, he's trying to make the point, is something not just outside but also interior. And it's only when you have both that you can properly describe the object of an action and therefore when that's habituated what the habitus is. So the example I um, was just going through in my Life in Christ course is when I say my breviary. So saying the breviary is a mechanical act. And I can have a habit of saying it in a certain way. But at a deeper level, what is the action, morally speaking, that I'm engaging in? It can just be an act of perseverance. I get through it. Everything on this page, praise the Lord. Everything on that page, praise the Lord. I get through it. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't particularly like the breviary. You know, all the things in my spiritual rule of life, I, I am faithful to the breviary, but I get very little joy out of it. Uh, but I do persevere. So when I'm doing it not quite right, what I'm doing, the interior, is just an act of perseverance, an act of getting through this. The exterior act, saying the breviary, the interior connecting with it, an act of perseverance. Perseverance is a good thing. An act of perseverance in the chapel every morning and every evening, that's a good thing. But it's not really what the breviary is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be an act, what St. Thomas calls an act of religion, an act of ecclesial worship. To do it that way, there has to be something different interior, meeting up, engaging with that exterior, saying the breviary. So what gets formed in me, what gets habituated within me, it's not enough to just look at the exterior act. I've got to also be thinking what within me is meeting up with that. So Pinkers maps this all out using, emphasizing that a habitus is something much broader within you than just a mechanical external habit. But a habitus can be bad, can be good, um, Okay, let's move along here. So the next thing I'm trying to introduce, the passions, reminding about the passions. So the passions and virtue. So the passions are the movements of the sensitive appetite, the passions which need regulating. The passions can move us to either apparent goods rather than real goods, which is a problem. For example, seeking sex with another man's wife. That's the example St. Thomas gives. Another man's wife in a sense, appears good, appears attractive, appears desirable. If I see her fully, I see her as belonging to someone else. I see her as not appropriate for me. The more fully I see, she no longer appears good in the sense of desirable for me, perfective of me. But when I don't see the big picture and I just look at one aspect of desirable, she can appear desirable to me, attractive to me. And this, St. Thomas says, is one of the two ways we sin, that we grasp things that have this appearance of good but aren't authentically good. And when our passions are not functioning properly, one of the ways our passions lead us astray is a pursuing apparent goods, not real goods. The other way the passions can go astray is 
They move us to things too much or too little. For example, eating too often, or for example, being sluggish in my pursuit of authentic recreation. We'll come back to the virtue of games or play later. So eating is a good thing. I should eat, but I can eat too much or I can eat too little. I can eat so in a kind of, in some sense, anorexic cult of not wanting to be overweight that I don't eat in a healthy way, don't eat in a balanced way. Or I can be so concerned with pleasure and the desirable um, that I eat too much. So your passions, even when they move you to real goods, can move you too much or move you too little. And we can habituate them too much or too little. Next point, virtues. So virtues, I say, put right reason into the passions, habituating the passions to pursue authentic goods and to pursue them in right measure. And to repeat what I've said already, there are two types of passions of the sensitive appetite. The concubiscible, which are inclined to seek what is suitable according to the senses and flee from what is hurtful. Whereas the irascible, which resists those attacks that hinder what is suitable and inflict harm. Yeah, so a guy who's irascible, we think of as being disagreeable, always ready to pick a fight. Um, the irascible man is seeing a problem and within him just rising do something about it. Um, and as a basic movement, that's proper. Um, it's a particular type of movement of the passions. The concubiscible either just going for what's easy or fleeing from what's difficult. We need this other set when it's not that straightforward, the irascible that rise up to conquer. And that also can go astray. We can just go around conquering all kinds of people and disagreeable things that actually, there's another way of approaching the matter. Um, and then the irascible can also go wrong in terms of people that just don't deal with the problems that they should deal with. With not just patience, but an unreasonable patience. So St. Thomas says that unreasonable patience is the seedbed of many vices. You know, sometimes you'll see a parent who just sees their children wreaking havoc and they just say, oh well, an unreasonable patience. And all kinds of damage ensues. So as a basic recap, what are the passions? What's going on there? The passions can move us. They do move us. They can move us in a disordered way. They need to somehow be habituated, have right reason put into them by the virtues. Okay, the virtuous mean, to recall this thing. So there's the object of an act, um, which here I'm quoting a book on the passions by Robert Minor, I guess. Um, he says, the pleasurable goods when apprehended activates the passions. We might say triggers them, to use a more contemporary term. So I see something, some pleasurable good, and it activates a passion that then springs forth from within me. Now say virtue causes the passions to be activated to the corresponding true good and in right measure. Well, particularly temperance is the virtue that moderates or forms the passions with respect to desires and pleasures. Abstinence is the virtue that moderates the sense of touch pleasures resulting from eating. Chastity is the virtue that moderates the sense of touch pleasures resulting from sex. And I know every moral virtue lies between two vices and is thus a mean. And I say the mean is the observance of reason in the particular manner and circumstance, 
but the virtue is not halfway between two vices. It varies with each virtue. So chastity, in particular, lies between lust and unfeelingness, as St. Thomas calls it. We might call it frigidity in English. Um, and I say St. Thomas notes that unfeelingness is so rare that we hardly have a word for it. I.e. chastity lies closer to unfeelingness than to lust. Now, before turning the page, um, all this sounds familiar. The virtuous mean being between two extremes, the excess and the deficiency. That the mean isn't halfway. So with some act fields of action, it will be closer to excess than to deficiency. With some fields of activity, it will be closer to deficiency than excess. So to another example from St. Thomas, the example of courage. So the two ways that can go wrong is being a coward or being foolhardy. And he says that courage is closer to being foolhardy than to being a coward, it's between, but it's between two extremes. And every moral virtue has a quantity dimension, two ways it can go wrong. Whereas, for example, the theological virtue of hope, you cannot hope too much. You can hope in a mistaken way. You can think, well, if I jump off the tower, God will save me. Well, that isn't hoping too much. It's hoping in a promise God has not made. Um, so the virtuous mean between two extremes. What else there? The virtuous mean, the measure, varies with each person. So gluttony. Um, how many donuts is too many donuts in terms of gluttony? Now, that will depend on how much a person exercises, so the cal calorific intake they need. It will depend on their particular individual metabolism. It will depend on in whose company they are um, and whether they're sat with other people eating donuts or whether they're just grabbing donuts all by themselves halfway through mass. You know, that there's a, a time and a place and a context as well as that measure how many donuts being particular to each individual person. And not just to the individual person, but to um, them at a particular moment in time. So if I've just been for a 10 mile run, an appropriate number of donuts is a bigger number than if I, I haven't. Um, that we, we need to eat more when we exercise. So the question of the virtuous mean has many variable factors that go into it. And that doesn't mean it's in the modern sense subjective and that you can make it up to be whatever you want. It just means it always needs to be tailored to the subject, but according to objective criteria. Does that make sense? So it's both subjective and objective, not subjective in that we make it up. So there are objective criteria at play, but that measure it for the subject. At this time, at this place, for this person, the exact measure is gonna vary. So the measure of um, an appropriate attraction for the pleasures of sex is going to be different for a married man and for a celibate man. That that kind of habituation, that measure, needs to look different. Okay, all of this is kind of introductory, repeating things I'm hoping you've heard before, even if not recently. Um, and repetition never hurts, or rarely hurts. Okay, top of page two, you'll see I've got that chart there that I put here, but not color-coded. Um, 
The anagram to remember the seven deadly sins, you're familiar with this, places G? No? Okay, well, the examination of conscience I've handed out for you that I've drawn up, drawn up over the years is based on applying the virtues and the seven deadly sins um, to examine yourself. And whenever I go to confession, um, I run through in my head these places G. Um, that I think it's usually a fair rule of thumb that some element of each of these seven sins will have been present in me since my last confession. Um, I obviously want to focus more on what's of more significance and not obsessed with a detail, but I work through those in my head in terms of examining myself and confessing. Um, so pride, lust, anger, covetousness, envy, sloth, and gluttony. Those seven deadly sins opposed by the cardinal virtues. Um, so the, the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. St. Augustine calls the four forms of love uh, as quoted in the catechism. So prudence is an intellectual virtue concerning right reason about action, but it also directs the will as a moral virtue. So it's about right thinking about stuff to be done, but also engages the will. Justice is a moral virtue seated in the will, but also with a seat in the appetites. Whereas temperance, which we'll focus on more, takes up the concupiscible power of the sensitive appetite, um, and thus is seated in the appetites. Um, the particular example, humility, um, in humility, temperance also moderates the irascible power of the sensitive appetite. So this desire to conquer, I need something to moderate that. And St. Thomas, this is how he defines humility. Whereas the proud man is always wanting to conquer, always wanting to excel, even unreasonably, that desire to excel, that desire to conquer needs a virtue that habituates it in proper measure, um, that recognizes our, our lowliness, that's humility. And then lastly, those four, fortitude takes up the irascible power of the sensitive appetite, but in a positive way, that we need this push, this drive, this strength, fortitude or courage. Okay, all of which is recapping. Father Tom Blau rewrote Edelweiss to have the capital sins. Did he? Yeah. Do you think I'd find that on YouTube? No, I uh, just have to find him. Okay. <laughs> oh, the t uh, Father Tom's here. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, he, I've... he also rewrote another one for the, fruit, the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I can somehow picture him singing that quite easily. Yeah. Yes, Last yes. <laughs> And he's doing homiletics with you all. Yeah, yeah. So he'll be here this afternoon. Okay, okay. Maybe he'll sing it over lunch for yeah. me. <laughs> okay, next recap point, the theological virtues. So these, I say, adhere us directly to God. So again, these therefore don't have right measure because you can't love God too much. You can just love him in a fake way, false way. Um, Michael, could you read the first of those quotes from the Catechism? The human virtues are rooted in the theological virtues which adapt man's faculties for participation in the divine nature. For the theological virtues relate directly to God. They dispose Christians to live in a relationship with the Holy Trinity. They have the one and triune God for their origin, motive, and object. And then Daniel, the next quotes. Now, the only one of the three, faith, hope, charity, I'm going to dwell on in these notes is charity. And I'm going to try and 
talk about charity in order for us to see how chastity needs to be part of charity. Um, charity being the queen of all the virtues. So what do I say here? I say charity. The final and unifying goal of all the strivings of the manifold human faculties is union with God in divine charity. So the appetites, you know, the hunger, they seek God. Um, and charity, when we possess it, resides in the will, the rational appetite, and fulfills it. Charity imbues all of the supernatural virtues and orders them ultimately to God. So to pause slightly there, if I have supernatural prudence so that intellectual virtue about what needs to be done, if I have that about the things of God and as they lead me to God and to union with God, it's charity imbuing that that makes it oriented to God, that makes it part of my movement to him. So that I'm not just thinking about right behavior in a Aristotelian sense, a natural sense, but in a supernatural sense, orienting me to the, the God of Jesus Christ. So charity, what is it? It unites us to God directly. St. Thomas says, divine charity loves God as a friend loves a friend. Which when you think of it, you know, this is an incredible intimate union with the Almighty if our possession of it means we can love God as a friend loves a friend. He goes on to say, and loves others for reason of our love of God. Uh, so just to pause there, I can love my friend in a natural sense, in an agreeable sense. When I love him out of my love of God, I'm loving him in a different sense. I'm loving him in a better sense, a more self-giving sense, a more detached sense. So you'll sometimes hear people hear this phrase, loving people for love of God, and somehow think that diminishes the love we have for them. Well, God loves my friend more than I love my friend. If I'm loving my friend out of love for him, out of love for God, I'm loving my friend better, not loving him less. Moving on, charity, I say, loves God for his own sake, not just for our benefit. Um, that contrasts with hope, so hope is a self-regarding virtue. Hope is about um, aiming for that self-realization that comes in the possession of God. Love, St. Thomas distinguishes, doesn't have this self-regard. It's just aiming for God for God's sake, not for what I get out of it. So it's appropriate for me to want what I get out of it, in, which is what the virtue of hope is about. But the queen of the virtues is love, loving God for God's own sake. Joy, um, so I say the fruit of charity is joy, rejoicing in the possession of God, the ultimate good. And the end of all human striving is thus achieved. Um, Distinguished then following St. Thomas's terminology, joy gaudium, which is in humans and angels and is a spiritual thing, whereas delectatio, which is physical, is in humans and animals. Yeah, so there's an overlap there. A human can experience both delectatio and gaudium. The angel cannot experience the physical pleasures of delectatio, the animal cannot experience the spiritual pleasures of gaudium, of joy. Have I already noted, um, so St. Thomas says, thinking just the overlap here, 
St. Thomas says anything that is capable of being an object of physical pleasure, delectatio, is also capable of being an object of spiritual pleasure, supernatural. So the donut, I can just wolf down the donut the same way my pet dog would. No thinking about it, just it tastes good and I experience it at the level of the senses. Or I can contemplate that this is a Krispy Kreme donut, that it's fluffy around its substance, that it's glazed with a fine layer of sugar coating, that it's filled, because it's a Boston cream, filled with moist, warm custard, that it's got a chocolate glaze on the top. And all of this in my rationality, I'm engaging with the donut, not just at the level of the delectatio like an animal, but as a rational being. And in faith, I see all the wonder of that donut as part of God's creation, as part of the good things God has made. So everything that I'm capable of engaging with at the level of the delectatio, I can also, as a rational spiritual being, engage with rationally, spiritually, and it can be part of my relationship with him. You're going to come? No. no. Don't for God, yeah. As a glue jar, the talk of that. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just yeah. I'd like to talk about something gluten free that was as nice, but there, there isn't any. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, yeah. Okay, next time I use that example, I'll refer to a steak. Um, do you get the point? Yeah. And do you see how you don't need to apply too much to think how with respect to sex that can be all just about a pleasure that is engaged with at an animal level or it can be part rationally spiritually part of a relationship a thing that is shared a thing that i can engage with with god So there's a, a very significant implication here for chastity uh, and for love in chastity involving the body. Get back to my notes. Yeah. For charity, would we say love of other would be a secondary cause or that it's the intentionality with focusing everything towards God that I can't remember what St. Thomas says on this, or even if he directly asks that question. So you're thinking, like in the level of the commandments, love of neighbor is secondary. Yeah. And is it the same? More of like for your 2 a.m. Like, if I treat loves God as friend, okay, so that's like directly God. But like interacting with others with the intentionality of this relationship with God or love for God be in my action towards others? Is that somehow secondary or just a second aspect of the same? Maybe if I rephrase it this way, there is a way of loving my neighbor that is loving him in God. So that it's through my love of God that I'm loving my neighbor, not just seeing my neighbor as an authentic good um, and at the level of my affections, my enjoyment, we enjoy playing whatever together. Um, those are all good, but that doesn't mean it's supernatural charity. It's supernatural charity when I'm loving him out of my love of God, in God. So the other isn't wrong, the other isn't a problem, but it isn't the same thing as loving my neighbor in supernatural charity, where I'm loving him in God, for God, through God.
And that can seem like it's in opposition when we're first approaching it. If I'm used to relating to my neighbor, my friend, in a way that doesn't relate to God, but there should come a stage where actually that just all naturally seems to fit together. That my friend is a gift from God to me. The level of the human affections I have for him likewise is a gift from God to me. Um, the sports, the games, the activities we enjoy doing together, these likewise are a gift from God to the two of us. Um, but that purity of loving him in God is beyond the level of natural friendship. So with loving your neighbor through God, is it, because with other things, like it's more virtuous to enjoy doing the virtuous thing than to do it. But like with loving your neighbor, is it more virtuous to love somebody that you like through God or to love somebody you don't like through God? Like, do you get, because with other things, it's, but in that one, it, it seems like loving somebody you don't like. That, would, that wouldn't be a, that wouldn't possess the virtue of friendship. Um, so it would be a different type of act. It would be a habituation in a different package. Um, it seems to me friendship is more natural and proper than the loving of enemies. Um, and that in a better world, there would not be enemies in an unfallen world. So at the level of different perfections, somehow friendship would seem the better thing. But in because of all the other virtues within me that I must develop, strive, overcome, loving my enemy might well push my growth and supernatural charity more directly than my love of friendship. I think that's as good an answer as I can get. Okay, next note, contemplative prayer. I say contemplative prayer is that which makes us grow most readily in love. Um, so why is it important to spend time in mental prayer in the chapel? Um, because the activity that most directly causes me to grow in supernatural charity is contemplative prayer. Um, so a priest who neglects his mental prayer isn't going to last long as a priest. He's not going to be a very priestly priest, even as long as he lasts. He's not going to have supernatural love within him. Um, in contrast, sloth and other vices opposed divine charity. We'll come on to those in a minute. Um, and I say, for our course, note, chastity finds its proper context as part of this love of God. So chastity is supernatural, not merely natural. The deepest motivation for chastity is our love of God, which directs us to use the sexual pleasures properly. And we'll come on to chastity yeah, later. Okay, over the page, um, page four here, actually I'm not going to go through this page because you had a whole rector's conference on these six loves just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, and actually the details of them are of limited relevance anyway, I think. So I'm going, just going to skip past this page. Um, but the basic point is there are multiple different types of loving, many of which are proper in their own way, but they're not um, equally significant in terms of how they relate us to God. They're not equally significant in terms of um, what good they, they pursue. Um, okay, so page five, sloth and envy. Um, so basically this is where this dynamic of charity giving joy 
doesn't work and somehow you end up with sorrow. Two different sorrows here, two different vices. So first at the top of the page there, sloth, also called apathy, also called in the tradition achadia. Or acedia, what is the American pronunciation? Acedia, okay. Um, okay, top of the page there, I say joy comes with possession of the good that is God. Uh, Tyler, can you read the quote from St. Thomas there? So this is Article 2 there. It is proper to each specific virtue to rejoice in its own spiritual good, which consists in its own spiritual act, while it belongs especially to charity, have that spiritual joy whereby one rejoices in the divine good. Okay, so all these different goods, the possession of each of them gives a different type of joy. The divine good gives a particular, the ultimate joy, is proper to rejoice in the divine good. So to not take joy in a good is a bad thing. So say, say, sloth is the vice that is the mirror image of this joy. Say, sloth is the spiritual sorrow in the face of spiritual goods, an oppressive sorrow that weighs on a man's mind and makes him want to do nothing. For example, I see the hard work involved in being a saint and I experience the sorrow of sloth. To just pause there, um, this is in the plural, spiritual goods. Um, so it's not just the good of God looks difficult um, and I experience sorrow at the face of the difficulty all the different spiritual goods that relate to him, difficult spiritual goods, beholding those difficulties, I experience sorrow. The difficulty of perseverance, the difficulty of self-denial, the difficulty of detachment, all of those spiritual goods, any one of those I experience sorrow about, that sorrow is sloth. Because it the experience of that sorrow stops me moving, stops me seeking that end, that joy I should seek in him. Back to my notes. Sloth thus prevents us seeking the divine life. This is therefore a mortal sin. And I know less technically we can see it as a sort of laziness in the things of God. Now, I note here a thing about activity. I say a slothful person might still be very active, but not active in the things of God. For example, a workaholic priest might create many committees, visit many sick people, write many talks, but not say his prayers and not act in love. And, you know, we don't want to be pointing fingers at different priests we know, but this dynamic is not hard to see. Uh, where we, and it can be in any one of us at some stage in our priesthood and some stage of our being a seminarian, where we kind of lose that focus. We're not finding the joy in the spiritual engagement with things. We do still have this need to be busy, and we can be very busy smothering that sorrow. So we need to, I say, examination, why am I active? Is it in God and for God or just for activity's sake? And over the years, my annual retreats, my examinations of conscience, I tried to come back to that question again and again. So it's not just to say, okay, I've been really busy this last month, so I must be doing okay. Why am I busy? What's motivating that busyness? Am I engaging with the spiritual goods in that busyness? So this isn't the, like, seeing some sorrow in the difficulties, but it's sorrow in the goods at the end of the difficulties? Is that... Because, like, you, you can see the hard work of being a saint and be kind of, like, oh, that's a, that's a lot of work, but still go for it. Right, okay. yeah. 
and obviously you're going to more possess the virtue when you're seeing that more purely um, but yeah when you see the difficulty have a slight sorrow with it but still push ahead aiming at the good then so sloth hasn't overwhelmed you um, but yeah there's don't know if you all know the book lukewarmness the devil within um, book by priest of opus day very good book analyzing this part of the difficulty with reading it is it kind of applies to everybody <laughs> but does it really apply to me as characterizing my state uh, and if we're still aiming at the spiritual good then not um, Okay, capital sins. Capital sins meaning they're the head, the source of a whole bunch of other sins. So for each of the seven deadly sins, seven capital sins, St. Thomas, following Gregory the Great, specifies what he, in a very uh, politically incorrect term, calls the daughters of, of that vice. Um, the daughters of sloth, so six of them. I've noted one in bold in particular because this has a very immediate application with respect to chastity. Wandering after unlawful things has no pleasure in spiritual things. So St. Thomas says, those who find no joy in spiritual pleasures have recourse to pleasures of the body. So just think about it very obviously, you are made for joy, you are made for pleasure. If you're not finding it in God, this thrust within you is just going to look for it somewhere else, grab for it somewhere else. And in terms of the flesh, it will grab for it in food and grab for it in sex. So I say, for our course note, the final daughter of sloth leads to unchastity. And as an aside, I note, workaholics can curiously find time for extramarital affairs. This is an amazing phenomenon when you think about it but you will see it sadly uh, when you hear confessions when you hear guys come to moments of kind of some kind of crushing conversion and repentance that they'll have been super busy and absorbed in their work not spending time with their wife and yet somehow finding time for an affair um, that the workaholic is driven in his activity but not satisfied in it. And so he needs that satisfaction somewhere else. If somehow you are spiritually satisfied in your work, then that's a sign you're not a, a workaholic in this sense. If when I'm working, I'm doing this for God, if when I'm working, I'm doing this for love of his people, there's just gonna be a joy and contentment in that, even when it's hard. Comments more? You can see the trajectory I'm trying to map out here about how this is going to relate to chastity and unchastity. Um, this presentation of the moral life, what we call virtue ethics, it dovetails completely with spiritual theology. Um, that you, you can see how this you would use in your spiritual direction, this you would when you're directing souls, when in your own confession, your own spiritual direction, seeking to know what do I need to bring to my director, my confessor. Um, chastity, unchastity, sloth, these things just, there's a whole network here. And the unifying thread is where the concupiscible power, the sensitive appetite, that drive is either going to be satisfied in the right thing or it's going to grab for something else. Okay, next. Uh, Sorry, yeah. What practical counsel do we give someone in confession who comes with the workaholic with extramarital affairs? To focus back on joining his work or carrying unity in the home? Or? A bit of all of those. Um, my experience um, in general with these things is this, the, the moment when someone has come to you recognizing that something's gone horribly wrong, 
all the real work has already happened. Yeah, the, the stage of realizing I've messed up, uh, I need to do something about this. So what we need to do is to encourage, reinforce, sometimes say, yes, you have messed up here, um, but also to indicate the trajectory that's led you here isn't random. Many other people have gone down this route. To leave this route, what does that mean? It means you need to find satisfaction in something that you haven't been finding it in. You need to engage with those realities differently and that it's possible to find satisfaction in them, to find happiness in them. And thus what's led you to this affair is possible to, because you're satisfied elsewhere, to not go down this path again. But most of that, a guy has at some level grasped in before that moment when he's come to you. Does that clarify? Yeah, and as a priest, it's just a wonderful joy to be at that moment. Um, and, you know, people often say, uh, that, oh, well, does the priest think less of me because he's heard me confess this? Um, and I'm sure you will have the same experience as me in that, that you just have this powerful glimpse of the grace of God at work with that of the capacity of somebody to change and be good um, so that we think more of people who've come to confession at that moment, not less of them. Because, you know, there's a whole bunch of people out there that aren't getting to confession, aren't at that moment. Envy. So envy, another capital sin. So I say it's another sadness, another mirror image of love. More technically, envy is a sorrow or sadness over the good of another because it's seen as something withheld from the envious person. So sloth is grief at the divine spiritual good. Envy is grief at our neighbor's good. It's a sin against charity, because charity finds joy in another's good. And it's a mortal sin because it is against charity. Does the logic of how St. Thomas is spelling that out, is that fairly clear? So I see my neighbor have the latest iPad, and mine is three models before that. Um, and I somehow, in my feelings, envisage that him having it is the cause of me not having it. There's a limited number of iPads to go around. If he didn't have it, it could have been mine. Um, that's kind of somehow what envy is doing. I feel sad that he possesses it because I think that somehow causes me to not possess it. Whereas if I love my neighbor, I see him have some good and I rejoice for him in having that good. And while the iPad example maps out in a physical possession thing, uh, we can have that same sense when a friend gets a better grade in a paper, um, when a friend is more intelligent in his comments, when a friend's better looking than we are. Um, the, the good my this other person has, I somehow feel sad when I see that good rather than rejoice for him in having it. Whereas if I have this charity, I just rejoice in the good everywhere I see it. Um, page six. Uh, where are we now? Okay, running out of time today. Lust. So even though this is a We'll come back to this, obviously, next time. But lust. What is lust? It's also this quest going wrong to the pleasures being pursued inappropriately. So what is lust? David, could you read that quotation from the Catechism at the top there? Lust is disordered desire for inordinate enjoyment of sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure is morally disordered when sought for itself 
okay, the grammatical parsing of that's a bit clumsy in how they've tried to get everything in a single sentence there. So, disordered desire for or inordinate enjoyment of. So, in both cases, sexual pleasure. Um, either the degree of enjoyment I'm getting in it is inordinate, is too much, or the type of desire I have for it is disordered. Um, and it's a pleasure sought in itself, isolated from procreative and unitive purposes. Whereas if I'm seeking that pleasure as part of the whole that it is a part of, in marriage, then it isn't lust. Um, so that's a sin of excess. Then quote St. Thomas, um, lust is about the greatest of pleasures, and these absorb the mind more than others. Um, you'd struggle to find a man who can't understand what's being said there. That's pretty... There are all kinds of different pleasures. Which ones are greatest at a physical sex, these absorb the mind more than others. Even those of us that have been celibate our whole lives, we still realize this kind of movement within us moves us more powerfully. Um, so St. Thomas says, this moves us more vehemently, even though it's not about as great a good as God, at the level of our bodies and thoughts, it's more immediate and thus moves us more vehemently. Now, because these absorb the mind more than others, I say, so when this goes wrong, much goes wrong. I know in italics, lust is not the most serious sin, pride is, but at a practical level, because of the strength of this movement, when it goes wrong, it causes a whole lot of chaotic other things to go wrong with it. Then ask in italics, why does the modern world, modern world seek lust? I seek it in a way that other eras didn't. And I speculate because it has forgotten God. Quoting St. Thomas, man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joys, it's necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. And like the other capital sins, it has multiple daughters. Um, I'm not going to run through those, but just the point that there are many different effects, many different other sins that flow out of the possession of this capital sin of lust. Okay, so all of that, um, so as I say, we've got multiple pages here, but we've got three sessions we're going to give to these notes. Um, we're overviewing chastity. We've spent today most of our time overviewing virtue in general, trying to think what virtue is, how it relates to the passions, how it's about habituation in the right things, and noticing how it can go wrong in these other vices. In the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. In the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.